0: Thank you so much. Good afternoon. I am always excited to come and to um, break bread with you all. Um, I'll get to the, the, the food in the back, but this is the food and the feast that I am most excited to share with you all. And I'm so happy to see a table of My Habitat folks in the room who are members of of this wonderful family, but also I'm happy to be family with them at Habitat. And then I also um, have joining me Minister Chelsea Banks, who's our um, minister for, for actually Chelsea Banks, wait, I keep saying that, she's a newlywed. Um, But she is our minister for children at Ebenezer, and her husband is um, our minister to youth. So I'm so happy that she's here with me. So I hear y'all have been having a good old time this week you had some um, a session on monday um, and my understanding is you talked a little bit about the prophetic words and messages of paul and then you had another wonderful lunch yesterday and today we're going to focus in on the prophetic church and the prophetic jesus as it relates to our witness outside of these four walls so i thought i would begin um, just so we're, you know, the lawyer in me always likes to make sure we have some defined terms up front, so we're all having the same conversation. Uh, so with that, I want to talk a little bit about what it means to be a prophet. Um, before I begin, I want to throw that question out. You can speak with your mouth full of food, just briefly. What does it mean to be a prophet? Just generally speaking. You don't have to give me an academic, full-on, with reference definition. Just. Your understanding of it, what it means. To see. To see. Have a vision. Have a vision. To be Speak truth. Say what needs to be said. Mm, I heard something on this side. Leader. A leader. Someone said something over here. I don't want to miss it. It was a male voice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. To be, to be truthful. That's what it was. I wanted to catch that. Um, Of the Old Testament prophets, which we often hear of the prophets in the Old Testament, and today I want to briefly talk about the Old Testament prophet and the New Testament prophetic tradition, right? So of the Old Testament prophets, there are 16 that are specifically called prophets, whose prophecies form part of the inspired canon, and they're often divided into four groups. We've got the prophets of the northern kingdom of Israel, which is Hosea, Amos, Joel, and Jonah the prophets of Judah, the southern kingdom, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Obadiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, the prophets of the captivity, Ezekiel and Daniel, and the prophets of the restoration, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. We also can identify specific folks who may not have been called prophets, but who were prophetic right? And in that category, we can look at Enoch and Abraham. We can look at Moses. I also like that we can include Miriam and Deborah in that number. And I always include Rahab. I find that Rahab to be a really interesting prophetic witness because she didn't even claim to be of the accepted faith, right? She wasn't even Jewish, yet she gave a prophetic word to the Jewish people to encourage them to keep on keeping on, right? I often think of Rahab as Uh, one who went from a prostitute to a prophet in one encounter. And of course, we know that she's in the genealogy that leads to the Savior. So a very interesting character to look at and to study. Walter Brueggemann, the very well-known Old Testament scholar, says that a prophet is someone that tries to articulate the world as though God were really active in the world right? So we, we articulate God as if God is active. God doesn't only sit high, God looks low, and God moves amongst us. And that means on the one hand that we identify those parts of our world order that are contradictory to God. And on the other hand, we talk about the will and the purpose that God has for the world that will indeed come to fruition even in the circumstances of life. He goes further to say that He identifies prophets prophets as ones that identify with some clarity and boldness. I like the use of that term, boldness. You're going to hear me call upon that as we talk about what that means for our role as witnesses of God. With some clarity and boldness, the kinds of political economic practices that contradict the purposes of God. And if they contradict the purposes of God, they will come to no good end. For he points that out, that if you think about economic injustice, or you think about ecological abuse of the environment, it is the path of disaster, according to Brueggemann. For he says, in the Old Testament, the prophets traced the path of disaster. That's an interesting way to think about a prophet. They talked about what would happen if you did not repent and turn back unto God, right? But then he goes on to say this part, the amazing thing about the prophets is that they were able to pivot. For after they had done that talk about the disaster, they were then able to talk with confidence that God is working out an alternative world order, which can reduce down to what I want to focus on today. And that is that a prophet's message, work, and Uh, witness is one of judgment and one of hope and that's what I want us to figure out how as a church and how as individuals who purport to have the faith in a God who can do the impossible we can discuss the judgment we can look at what's contradictory even in our current world order and pivot and talk about the hope of what that can look like so let's dive into that A prophet articulates judgment to turn our hearts back to God, to encourage repentance, but yet also articulates hope on what happens when we repent, what happens when we turn around our own personal world order and the world order of the communities in which we work. A prophet casts a realistic and truthful narrative and analysis of the current state of affairs and then challenges that view and that reality with what it can be when we turn back to God. A prophet calls on our faith and activates, ignites, and agitates us to really walk out our faith. I think that oftentimes we talk about our faith as if it's a trophy on the wall rather than as something we are constantly having to engage and wrestle with in very intimate ways. St. August, Augustine says that faith is to believe what you do not see and the reward of this faith is to see then what you believe. We understand faith to be the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. In our very secular and worldly view, it's difficult to aspire for something you haven't yet seen, isn't it? It's difficult to lean forward into something you don't yet know. It's, it's like joshua convincing the people to put their foot in the water of the jordan river in order to get to the promised land when many of them probably couldn't swim we have many of those moments in our own personal walk with god i'm sure if we really are honest about engaging our faith god how could you call me to do that how could you tell me to forgive that person how could you really think i'm credible able and qualified to do that which you've called me to do and to say that what you've called me to say that that not knowing what the outcome is going to be but doing it nonetheless because we believe that god is god faith involves belief in something often bigger than ourselves that reaches beyond our mere intellect and that requires our souls and our spirits to engage It's not merely a trophy, as I said earlier, but it must be dynamic in order to become. And honestly, I think, and that's why the work of Lenten season for many of us, I believe that great work is the soul work, where we actually have to become intimately connected again to our souls. The season of Lent for me and for many is our opportunity to return to ourselves, Because we get so caught up in the hustle and the bustle of life, we stop asking why we do what we do, and we just do it. During Lent, we begin to go back to our why. Isn't that right, Tom? We've been focusing on that quite a bit in the habitat realm. And begin to ask and to seek and have the bravery to see, as David did in Psalm 51, that there's some mess in us that's been keeping us from being all that God has created us to be. Cleanse me with hyssop, O Lord. Wash me that I might be made new. God, cleanse me so much so that I might return into the joy of my salvation. All of a sudden, we begin to encounter God again for the first time. That's why Lent is so powerful. And that's why this engagement with our faith is often something we leave to the side because if we do that faith work, we're afraid of how vulnerable we might feel. We're afraid of what we might see in ourselves and what's been keeping us from being all that God has called us to be. To be prophetic, we have to be willing to deal with the parts of us and the parts of our community that have not yet returned back unto God. That's hard work because it means that we've got to call some things out that we have become comfortable with rather than to enter into some spaces, conversations and relationships that are not comfortable. I often call that the yoga work of faith where you have to sit in a position that doesn't feel good or that is not comfortable at all. And you may look silly doing it, but if you just stay in that uncomfortable place, there will be a great reward. So a prophetic church, one that represents a prophetic Jesus is willing to take that deep dive. One of my favorite prophets in the old Testament is the prophet Isaiah so Isaiah says in chapter 40 verses 3 and 6 and I will read these to you he says a voice cries out in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make straight in the desert a highway for our God for every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain then he says the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all people shall see it together for the mouth of the lord has spoken a voice cries out there is a crying out that is a part of the prophetic tradition there is the speaking out There's speaking to speaking truth in the midst of gray and lack of clarity right there is a crying out that isaiah puts forth in this chapter and then This chapter is the beginning of the second part of the book of Isaiah. In the first half of the book, Isaiah the prophet delivers a message of judgment. Remember, judgment and hope. To Judah and to Israel and other pagan nations, Isaiah calls them to repentance and encourages them to turn from their sinful ways. In this second half of the book, where I just read these few verses, the prophet brings a message of hope forgiveness and comfort this second half tells of a release from the babylonian captivity the future redeemer who will come to bring sight to the blind and set the captives free and a future kingdom on earth as it is in heaven in this text isaiah offers words of comfort to an exiled people and he says to them that you've been exiled for so long but now let's get ready for there is a time for restoration that's we all want to hear that right We all want to hear about the refreshing and the restoration, but before we can get to the restoration, he focuses in somewhat on that judgment component. Isaiah is speaking to a people who know wilderness and exile very well. The imagery, again, visible, desert, rough places, valley and mountains. He uses that throughout his prophetic words because he calls us into this conversation and engagement. His words, of course, in Isaiah 40, were not just for his current generation, but for the generations to come. For we know that that is also the word in pericope that John the Baptist quotes when he begins to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. For I come as the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And of course, Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Isaiah's prophecy speaks to us because it calls forth our voice. In the midst of wilderness moments, in the midst of when we now pull ourselves out of the text of Isaiah 40 and look at our current circumstances, some would probably claim that we're in a wilderness moment right now in our country and in our world. When we look at it from an environmental perspective, when we look at it from an economic justice perspective, when we look just at the city of Atlanta, and realize that our city ranks number one of all the cities in this country for economic inequality the distance between the haves and the have-nots this is a wilderness moment i had the opportunity to work quite a bit with the food bank and um, we did recently received our annual um, one of our annual updates on the work that the food bank had to do in our city due to the government shutdown Remember? So we fed the TSA workers. We fed the workers at the IRS. And just yesterday when we, were re- when we were recounting that work, many of the people said that when they were feeding those folks who were in the lines, the folks in the line said they never thought they would be in that line. Many, even though you don't feel the brunt of it, in our communities are in a wilderness moment. When we look at the crisis of affordable housing in our city, in our country, the lack of safe, affordable, decent housing for families, for individuals, when it, on average it costs $21.21 to afford a two-bedroom apartment without spending more than 30% of your income. That's a nationwide statistic. In Atlanta, there's a, it, it's a little bit more than that. And the minimum wage is not more than $9 in most states in this country. There's a wilderness moment going on. Uh, Matthew Desmond in his book, Evicted, recounts what it, what eviction looks like in this one town in Milwaukee, but uses that data to project what it looks like throughout this country and, and just what glimpse and lens that provides into this issue of housing. And one of the things he does is he ties the issue of housing also to our criminal justice system. and with respect to the African American community, he says African American women are locked out as a result of eviction records, and African American men are locked up more than any other group in this country. When we look at our criminal justice system, when we look at housing, when we look at our economic inequality, when we also look at the lack of mobility, not just economic inequality, but the, the lack of mobility between economic status points we realize that we're in a wilderness moment. And all of this is hitting at a time when our country is more divided than united. When the political discourse, regardless of your political party, we can all attest to the fact that the political discourse is divisive. Remember there was a time in Congress where there were civil conversations, even when you disagreed, right? So in this moment of a wilderness experience, a voice should cry out. And my question that I pose to you all and the larger churches: where is the church's cry? Right? Where is the church's cry? I mean, when we hear the assault on immigrant families, Maybe you don't think that all the immigrants need to come into this country, but I'm sure that the love of Christ should overwhelm you such that you are willing to work on some resolution for these are two people. These also are people who are created in the image of God. Where's the church's cry and the church's voice? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And yet we can't even figure out how to get along in the four walls of many of our churches. We, we fight amongst ourselves, we are divided and segregated amongst ourselves, and this is something that I know that you all are working on, other churches are working on, but at some point, we've gotta start to cry out. Even if we don't have it all figured out, we do know that there could be a cry of love, which is justice in the public, justice is love in the public space, right? How do we begin to act out this love of Christ in such a way that brings forth judgment but also points to hope so a prophetic voice that we hear from isaiah that encourages us to cry out extends from the old testament into the new testament we have john the baptist crying out to another generation that the christ is to come and i like that as a bridge for our conversation to this conversation of a prophetic jesus and a prophetic christ and what that looks like and what that says to us as those who are followers of christ judgment and hope in the old testament translates and bridges into the new testament through crucifixion and resurrection crucifixion the judgment resurrection the hope so come with me now just for the next few minutes to the book of luke let me read these few verses and this is how i want to use this to conclude and i want to hear from you all as we do so because now i'm bringing us into lent so in luke chapter 23 verses 44 through 49 luke says it was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. then jesus crying out once again with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, certainly this man was innocent. When all the crowds who had gathered there for this spectacle saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. But all of his acquaintances including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. The moment of crucifixion, the moment of judgment. And I, as I read these verses, every time I read them, I, I try to visualize what they're seeing in that moment, but I also try to wonder what they're thinking. For these acquaintances, including the women, had followed Jesus throughout his three years' ministry. They saw Jesus perform miracles, healing blind Bartimaeus, giving him his sight. At the mere touch of the cloak of his garment, a woman with an issue of blood was made whole. Proclaiming that he was the son of God, that he came to save the world and yet now he's hanging on a cross crucified. I mean, what what could they've been thinking? I mean, you, we know how the story ends. So sometimes it's hard for us, but I want to encourage us just in these next few minutes, not to jump to resurrection Sunday. But what is, what is life like on Saturday? If he's crucified on Friday and he doesn't rise again till Sunday morning. I mean, what, what do you do on Saturday? How many people were crying out? Or how many were thinking all hope is now lost? I mean, you, you've probably been in, at this faith thing for a while, I would imagine. Have you ever had a Saturday moment? You, you know that there are some promises of God that should be on the way, you hope, right? But you don't see them yet. I mean, sometimes Saturday lasts a week, a month, or years. Someone in here may be in a Saturday moment. I had a Saturday moment when I was going through my divorce two days, begun two days after I was ordained. I'm like, wait. You, have you ever felt that way? You've done everything you thought you were supposed to do. You've been faithful. You've sacrificed. You've, you've read your Bibles. You've taken Eucharist. You've gone to every service you could possibly ever go to. And yet you don't hear an answer to your prayer? Mother Teresa said for 50 years she didn't hear God's voice. How, her Saturday was 50 years. You know, Madeline Liango, the Christian mystic, says it's great when you first accept Christ, right? Because when you pray, and you get these immediate yes responses. Whoo, take me back to the joy of my salvation, right? To the, the beginning of relationship with Christ. But she, she goes on to then say, but as you stay in this faith thing a little bit longer, you begin to pray and you then get no answers. That's tough. And she says, that's tough enough to get no answers she said the worst is when you pray and you don't hear anything at all those are saturday moments you know all these wonderful hallelujah mountaintop experiences in this moment right here now hanging on the cross and somewhere between that crucifixion moment your faith has to be stirred and ignited, to, as, as my, we say in my grandmama's church, so that you can keep on keeping on. Because somewhere along the way, you've got to begin to cry out. So the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come after y'all for a minute, because I know it, it, in, in many Episcopal churches I've been in, not this one, y'all don't really cry out during your worship services am i am i stepping out of my lane but there is something prophetic for your own soul and the witness of that to others that comes when you cry out isaiah said a voice cries out john the baptist comes and says i am one of the voices that cries out Jesus hanging on the cross says, I cried out. And my question to all of us, and you, for those who thought I might give just an academic, and I could do that next time, but an academic conversation of the church, I really came for you individually in your own faith walk to ask you, when did you last cry out about your faith? When did you remind yourself that God is still able? When did you remind the person next to you on the pew that I know that even in this moment we're being called to do something uncomfortable and yet God is still able to keep you? You're not going to fall apart. You're not going to lose everything. You all know I like that conversation about race. You know that thing we talk about occasionally? Because it's really a human conversation. I mean, you know, when you take it all away, it's really about human beings connecting authentically right but it's hard sometimes and uncomfortable to connect with people who don't look like you who aren't from your neighborhood who didn't go to your school who aren't a part of your church and yet and still we're still called as disciples of christ to the whomsoever barbara brown taylor in her new book holy envy i don't know if you all have read that but that's a talks about her own exploration of of the interfaith intersectionality she says something that i think i I, it has stuck with me i haven't been able to put it down where she says the one line she draws now is that when she is called to choose between her religion and her neighbor she always chooses her neighbor because we are never commanded to love our religion but we are commanded to love our neighbor the prophetic church must look like a prophetic Jesus who came for the whomsoever and gave his life for the whomsoever while crying out, Father, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. Now, the good news is that when you make that cry, you hopefully are not on a cross being crucified, yet instill that as a cry that must come from the one who follows after Christ father into my, thy hands. I commit my spirit. I trust you. O God. With all of who I am for ultimately, I know that you created me for your worship and your purpose and your use. When John calls out, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. I don't believe that the church has obeyed that call. When was the last time that you heard the church repenting? I don't think we can have credibility in our prophecy if we ourselves individually and as a church collectively have not repented. I love Notre Dame. I wrestled with whether or not I was going to say this, but I'm gonna say it. I love Notre Dame, I was there in June. The outcry for this edifice has been louder than the outcry for the destruction of lives. It is beautiful in architecture. It houses amazing history. It is a building, and in less than a week, they have raised more than a billion dollars to rebuild the spire. And coming into work this morning, I said, we have enough money in this world to end world hunger. Because if we can throw that kind of money together to rebuild a building, and yet and still we have people starving in the shadows of the building, where is the voice crying out from the church? Where are I mean, where, where are we where are we crying out for the buildings that God has built in God's own image that suffer every day? Being a prophetic voice is not a comfortable place to be. But it is one that is commanded for us to be a prophetic voice for love and loving the unlovable a prophetic voice that calls for justice in the face of injustice even when the injustice benefits you that's why we don't do it because the injustice benefits us it gives us comfort it helps the privileged but if we deny God, in that moment, we are like those who said, crucify him. So there were those who yelled crucify him in that text of Luke that I read, but there were also those who stayed quiet and allowed the crucifixion to go forth. And of course, I'm reminded of the words of King who said, it's not the words of our, en- of our enemies that's the worst evil. It's the silence of our friends. Our friends, the church, we're not crying out. And we've got to cry out. We serve a prophetic God. A prophetic Christ. So in this Lenten season, when we point the finger at those who crucified an innocent man, and when we prepare prepare ourselves to partake of the Eucharist, May we pray a prayer of Judas and say, God, whatever Judas ways may be within me that have betrayed you by being silent and not crying out, I repent and I ask of your forgiveness for there are many in this world are wondering where the church is and why the church has been so silent for it is in times like these where there's divisive dialogue that the church can be the unifier where there's hatred and injustice where the church can be a beacon of light upon a hill and we can usher all into a moment of resurrection Now, many will say that a prophet points to heaven as the day of resurrection, that things will get better in the by and by. That's heaven. But I like what Brueggemann says when he comes back around in this conversation on prophecies. He says, that's escapism. For truly, the prophetic word is to call forth a new world order in the here and now. David says it in Psalm 27, he says, I'm confident of this one thing, that I shall see the goodness of the Lord where in the land of the living. Jesus says it when the disciples ask him how to pray and he gives them the words of the Lord's prayer. He said, Lord, may thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A prophet's voice calls forth God's will on earth, not directing us to some here great by and by and, pearly gates but to do the tough work of creating god's will here on earth prophetic church prophetic jesus in the midst of a lenten moment may god give all of us our voice may god remind us of all the wilderness moments that he's brought us through may god encourage us in our saturday spaces Reminding us that the resurrection is to come. Giving us a hope that ignites and guides our faith through the darkness. Knowing that Sunday is still to come. Amen. Amen. So prophetic church, prophetic Jesus, we're we're not done now. I want y'all to do some work. (laughs) We have uh, like eight minutes. First, I want to open the the floor to questions or thoughts that occurred to you. Yes. I'd like to know who you think is a prophetic voice in America today. That's a great question. Other than you. Oh, (laughs) praise God. Thank you. Um, Well, there are quite a few folks. I think in many times, many instances, Saint Fran, uh Pope Francis is a prophetic voice, constantly calling us back to the love of Christ. Um, uh, a woman, Tracy Blackman, who she we've had her at Ebenezer a few times. She's a powerful prophetic voice. Um Moral Mondays. William yeah, William Barber, definitely a prophetic voice in this moment in time. Uh there are a few what's that thank you tom (laughs) there are consequences to being a prophet that that's the other part i didn't we didn't get to talk about that but that that actually is an interesting conversation there are consequences to being prophetic um which is why you need god right you i always want my prophecy linked to god because i'm like i can't fight them all right i want i want the jehoshaphat god right that says uh, the battle is not yours it's the lord's um so there but there are a lot of folks that are out there on the verge. brian stevenson is definitely a prophetic voice in this moment the more you, i'm thinking it through of some of the folks i was trying to also think of some other women um yeah oh, Brittany packnett definitely absolutely um vashti mckenzie who we had at our habitat conference she's a prophetic voice Renita weems if you have not She's an Old Testament scholar, but I just adore her preaching and her writings. She's a prophetic voice. Um, prophetic voice for some spiritual discipline, transformational work, Ruth Haley Barton. She's powerful. She has a, a great, a wonderful book that I return to every Lenten season called Sacred Rhythms. Um, so yeah, I, I could think of some more. If, you, if anyone has some other names you wanna throw out right now that you think are prophetic voices in this moment? Curry. Oh, absolutely, Bishop Curry man to talk about love in the the midst of the royal family (laughs) on the world stage and i say that tongue-in-cheek i have nothing against the royal family but that even that his his homily struck such a nerve with folks wasn't that fascinating yeah about love who would think that that would be controversial right yeah anything anyone else any questions I'm interested to know a little bit more about your women's programs at Ebenezer and, and what other churches have those. I, I think that's great. I've just not heard much about
1: Oh, okay. Programs.
0: Um, so very quickly, I'll give you just a quick overview. I came to Ebenezer a little over 10 years ago. Um, Ebenezer, like a lot of our larger kind of traditional churches, there were many different women auxiliary type groups, right? So women have been active in Ebenezer for way before generations before i got there but there hadn't been one concentrated intentional women's ministry kind of programmatically with a thrust and a theme and a and so th- that's what i i was assi- i think god assigned me to ebenezer to bring that forth um as a result of that uh, we uh and i'm not i don't know if you all have this but we got i really pushed hard to get away from status issues that happen in a lot of those kind of ministries so we don't have a president And a vice president, we have a steering council. And that's very intentional um, because it's not about you, right? It's not about uh, how long you've been a member and who your family is. It's about how are we going to serve God together. And with that, there's still challenges every year. You know, we bring in new leadership. I really want to develop leaders within the church, which means you bring in a lot of new folks who aren't used to church folks. Church folks are unique and peculiar. And so sometimes sometimes they're loving and sometimes they're not <laughs> so through that ministry though um, it's been wonderful I always begin I, I begin um, I've been in I've been actually in initiating women's ministries for over 24 years now and one of my constant ways of doing so is I always begin them with Bible studies because there needs to be a, a standard and a formative spiritual formation component so that you can always call upon that when you see behaviors that are not aligned with the work that God has called us to do. So that, that was one way we started. So with that, we've, we've gotten very active in political action, a lot of sex trafficking work. Um, we actually did a graduation, one women's day, which is an annual thing at Ebenezer. We did a graduation of 14 um, survivors of sex trafficking who had come through a program, and we did that actually as part of our worship service, and it was absolutely phenomenal. And one of the young women who did that, her name was Rachel, is named in the Rachel's Law, the Safe Harbor Rachel's Law that was passed in 2015. So that was really awesome. Yeah. Anyone else?
1: I have a question, uh, Natasha, about... I was
0: like, that was the voice of God. I know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not quite. Uh, um, One of the... um, thank you one of the uh, reasons i take that as a compliment one of the reasons that we have a this series this this holy week as well as a series for the year of um for the city is that one of the ways that we do our theology in the episcopal church and one of the texts if you like is the city that we see the city as a sacred space mm. i'm curious of where you see the the prophetic edge um in the life of those who live work strive for the city um maybe beyond the church how we might take the lead in what you see happening in atlanta if there's any anything out there that you think there is a is a is a moment of where there's that tension between as you said judgment and hope what do you see in atlanta at the moment
0: so there are consequences right yeah. um uh, so I think you all are starting, or are, are, are actually some of you may have been doing this work also, but I think um, in Atlanta in particular, right, so we've got this wonderful history of the civil rights movement and such, um, I think that there are a few things. I, one way in which I think a church leads is you take issues, you don't take political parties, right? And, and one of the things I, I constantly say in my Habitat world is housing should not be partisan, it's an American issue. I also say the same thing about race. Race is not a partisan issue, it's an American issue. So that's an issue in this city, in particular with our history and our challenges that I think the church can be a leading voice on witnessing that. Now, what does that mean? Remember the repent for the kingdom of God is at hand? That means that there's a lot of repenting work that needs to be done in the churches, right? When, and, and, and I'm pointing right now, my finger would point, as if I'm a finger pointer, but I'm not, my hand would extend. <laughs> to white churches i'll deal with some black church stuff too because that black churches and I, it, but the fact that we have to say white churches and black churches isn't that crazy right is that, so as king said the t- 10 o'clock hour the 11 o'clock hour is the most segregated hour in the country it's really the most unholy hour right if, if 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 church and in particular in the episcopal tradition the eucharist is central communion is central yet we're divided right how do we begin to model and witness that in such a way that we are honestly working to eradicate those barriers, right? So people may or may not still go to their places of worship because that's where they've always been. It's their place of comfort. So maybe Sunday doesn't look as different, or maybe you can begin to outreach and open doors and become more accessible. Things that, who you put in leadership, right? Because that's the other thing you'll see oftentimes churches that want to be interracial, yet the leadership structure is all white, you very rarely see an interracial church where the leadership structure's predominantly people of color. That's because of the, doc, the, the historical issues of power and privilege in our country. If we dive deeper, we can do a lot more of a breakdown of what that looks like and how that is, but if you just take your anecdotal eye and begin to look at the churches and with an honest eye, right, um, so there's a repentance component, a leading of repentance in that, whether it's it's the mainline tradition, the evangelical tradition of the church. We haven't dealt with this issue of race and racism and the ways in which we've allowed theology to be perverted, to allow for that to continue to happen. Right? We haven't gotten an apology in this country on the issue of slavery. And we know very well when you study the issue of slavery, that it was truly buttressed by theology, purported by many who were in white mainline denominations. What do we do with that? We look at that, we begin to repent, we begin to intentionally work against it. We have conversations, we break bread in places where we're uncomfortable. So race is one issue. The other one is when we begin to look at issues of homelessness, which you all are already doing with the great work and ministry of Monica and the work that you all are doing as you're breaking out of these doors, start claiming issues as american issues as as people issues as god's people's issues stop allowing them to be partisanized because people are hungry people are hurting people are in need we've got to find a way to take that issue back from being so ostracized as a political issue and also as christians we've got to stop being afraid of the political conversation jesus was political when you look at the gospels When he's talking about the kingdom, the kingdom conversations and the kingdom parables, he's dealing with economic justice issues. He's dealing with issues of difference, racial issues of difference, religious issues of difference. The woman at the, at the well in John four, the Samaritan woman was not Jewish, yet she was the only one he went to to quench his thirst and to have the longest recorded dialogue in the Bible is between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And yet we don't do that ourselves, right? So that's a, a long answer, but I, it's a great question because when we look at our, our city, there's such great need. Are are you all involved? You know, on the west side. Solution right? So I mean, there's there's issues. I would I would evaluate some of the main issues and and look at the uh, do a um, resource inventory, right? Of the congregation, connections, networks, resources. I don't only mean money, right? But skill sets, expertise, interest. And, and see how that can direct you to begin to say, we're taking on this issue this year. This is how we're going to begin to be the prophetic, prophetic voice in this conversation and cry out. Because we've got to begin to raise the standard. Because if we don't raise that standard, right, we continue to get washed over. And people's lives are depending on us.
1: And this would be the last last one, but... We save the best. <laughs> uh, the least of these, and you're right, right? We have golden silence, right, from the churches. When I came here in 91, I was told that this is the mecca of the civil rights movement, and the churches were absolutely vocal. I don't he- hear that anytime time now. I'm in the AU center.
0: I don't see the academic cohorts in the AU Center raising their voices on what's going on at the West End. Mm -hmm. So
1: something has happened to dampen that enthusiasm and to silence our voices, and I think we just have to raise the cry Mm -hmm. that uh, we gotta do something about it. And immediately and now.
0: That's right, absolutely. Thank you. I'll close close with this, uh, I, you all have heard, I've mentioned St. Augustine already, and I, I like this, um, this quote of his. He says, when asked the question of what love looks like, he says, love has the, the feet to hasten to the poor and the needy. It has eyes to see misery and want. It has the ears to hear the sighs and the sorrows of men and women. That's what love looks like. The voice that we cry out with must lead with love. And again, it's not the trite love, it's not the powerless love, it's a relentless, powerful, meaningful, cutting edge love that doesn't allow setback, challenge, and even crucifixion to stop it. Let us pray. Oh, Holy One, we come now thanking you for your words and your reminders of a prophetic acting out of our understanding of our faith. We pray now, oh God, that you stir up and fan into flame gifts that you've placed in us that have remained dormant because we were afraid of the consequences. We pray, oh God, that you stir up in us our faith ignited again for you even said in your word that if we have the faith the size of a mustard seed that we can move mountains there are some mountains before us oh god and this is now our watch what will we allow to happen on our watch help us to see those who are in need and in despair help us to hear the sighs and the sorrows Help us to act with constructive intention so that we might be a part of the great work, O God, that you are doing and that we might call down your will from heaven into earth. It is in the name of our Savior who rose that we too might rise above fear, above pride, above our own comfort level and cry out. It is in Jesus' name we pray and give thanks. And together we all said, amen.
1: Natasha, thank you so much for being with us today. thank you to everybody please do take a cookie as you go Um, and there are many more opportunities to join together in fellowship especially in worship this week Uh, blessings for the rest of holy week